Seminar on Freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to reignite the crackling fuse of possibility. If you don't already know Tom Morello, you should. His music and his message. Tom's a wizard with a guitar, a founding member of the rock group Rage Against the Machine, and part of the supergroup Prophets of Rage. You may also know him as the Night Watchman. Importantly, Tom's a political activist who deploys his art and his energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere, from Black Lives Matter organizers to veterans against the war, from striking nurses and teachers to domestic workers. He extends his solidarity to every impulse toward peace and justice. So thank you, Tom, for all you do. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we tune in and look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces of enlightenment and liberations, places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. Today, we're broadcasting from Chicago, a city whose name means, in the Algonquin language, river whose shores are lined with wild leeks. Multiple waterways converge here, and so Chicago is home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. Following the settler violence culminating in the Black Hawk War of 1832 and the 1833 Treaty of Chicago, many indigenous peoples were murdered or forcibly removed from these territories. Over a century later, under a different set of U.S. government policies called the Indian Relocation Act of 1956, many indigenous nations found themselves once again coerced to move, but this time back to the urban centers where their ancestors had been disposed of a century earlier. Today, Chicago has the third largest urban native population in the United States, with more than 65,000 Native Americans in the greater metropolitan area. As part of an effort to understand this violent history, as teachers, freedom fighters, and activists, we strive to remember and to honor this history. We acknowledge them, we thank them, and we honor the history of stolen land and resources, a history of a willful, deliberate, and systemic American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is A Moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem is The Spring Offensive of the Snail by Marge Piercy. Living someplace else is wrong. In Jerusalem, the golden floating over New England smog, above paper company forests, deserted brick textile mills, square brooders on the rotten rivers, developer-chewed mountains. Living out of time is wrong. The future drained us thin as paper. We were tools scraping. After the revolution, we would be good, love one another, and bake fruitcakes. 
In the meantime, eat your ulcer. Living upside down is wrong. Roots in the air, mouths filled with sand. Only what might be saying, I cannot live crackling with electric rage always. The journey is too long to run. Cursing those who can't keep up. Give me your hand. Talk quietly to everyone you meet. It is going on. We are moving again with our houses on our backs. This time we have to remember to sing and make soup. Pack the capital and the vitamin E, the basil plant for the sill, Apache tears you picked up in the desert. But remember to bury all quarrels behind the garage for compost. Forgive who insulted you. Forgive yourself for being wrong. You will do it again for nothing living resembles a straight line. Certainly not this journey to and fro, zigzagging you there and me here, making our own road onward, as the snail does. Yes, for some time we might contemplate not the tiger, not the eagle or grizzly, but the snail, who always remembers that wherever you find yourself eating is home, the center where you must make your love, and wherever you wake up is here, the right place to be, where we start again. The Spring Offensive of the Snail by Marge Piercy. A second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere. The nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of utopia. This is your time to put words on the page without second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses and consciousness to pop into your head unexpected. Here's today's prompt. On this new morning, what will it mean for you to start again? What will you forgive? Who will you engage? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, activists, authors, and artists after hours, pronounced variously as a question mark, an exclamation point, or a simple sigh. Ah, it's where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about freedom, about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, and what is to be done. Or as our old friend and mentor Maxine Green would put it, what does the known demand of us now? We look at the circumstances of our lives, liberate our most utopian imaginations, and ask ourselves, what is to be done? How can we link arms with others and build a movement toward realizing our freedom dreams? I'm so honored to be joined under the tree by Joel Westheimer, an old friend and comrade, who as a professor at the University of Ottawa, um, and where he is also a columnist, I believe, for CBC Radio's Ottawa Morning Show. Joel, welcome. Bill, it's so nice to be here. And I can't help but noticing that not only is it comfortable under this tree, but there are no mosquitoes, there are no black flies. It's, it's uh, I know. I know. It's a, it's a little bit of utopia. I, I often say, you know, the root word of utopia is nowhere. And that's where we are. Under the tree is a utopian space where we can think freely, talk freely. I want to make sure I got your position right. You're you're a, a university research chair in democracy and education at the University of Ottawa. Is that correct? 
That is correct. Okay. And you still do your column for the CBC radio? I do. I'm a, I'm a radio, I'm a radio columnist for, for CBC radio here in Canada. And, uh, I do various shows, um, most often on, uh, on Ottawa morning, but, uh, but other shows as well. Right. And you grew up in New York and moved to Ottawa, I don't know what, 10, 15 years ago. It's almost 20 now. I oh can't my believe God. it. I know. Yes. When you get old like me, I mean, the time is just flashing by. But, <laughs> but I'm, I, if, it, if that's 20 years ago, then we have to go back maybe 30 years. But do you remember when we met and how we used to see each other when you were, I thought of you as a kid, you weren't a kid, but. Bill, how could I forget? I mean, the first time we met, I was visiting my sister in her office at Teachers College, Columbia University, where she was doing her PhD uh, or EDD at TC. And, um, and there was this other guy who shared her office and, and his name was Bill Ayers. That would be me. Exactly. And you used to come in after school. You taught high school. I taught, that's right. I, I taught middle school, uh, grades six, seven, uh, six, seventh and eighth grades at um, Columbus Academy, which was IS 44 in, in Manhattan, uh, an amazing school at the time. And what, what subjects did you teach? Okay, so so Columbus Academy was a crazy school which managed to combine um, from the teacher's perspective the most uh, trying of both elementary schools and secondary school systems. So I taught different subjects to different groups of kids. It was, it was a high burnout school. Um, so I taught math, I taught social studies, I taught science, I taught Spanish at one point, I taught um, folk singing. Um, it was, we were all over the place. And by the time I left Columbus Academy, I was like the third most senior teacher there because it was such high burnout, but it was a great school. But there's something neat about doing that. I mean, it's not, that's not like integrated curriculum. That's like, Hey, the world is one thing. Why don't we just dive into the world as it is? I kind of like it. Well, that's exactly right. And you got to know the kids for their whole selves, right? So just because one kid is is bad at math. You also knew that he was an incredible artist, or she was an amazing, um, you know, literary uh, scholar, and, right. and so you got to know the kids in their entirety, and that was an amazing uh, aspect of this school. Yeah, schools are so quick to judge kids by their deficits and their danger, and so it takes them so long sometimes to see that this kid who's, you know, misbehaving over here is also a wonderful poet. And you know, I always want to turn those things on their head. But, yeah, but, you know, the whole school was really oriented. I mean, Jerry Charney was the director and Esther Forrest was the assistant director. And they, I think, were exactly as you're saying, they were really oriented to finding out what kids were good at rather so than what they were bad at, you know? Yeah, and that creates a school that kids don't have to recover from. That creates a school where where, where kids can launch out of. That's beautiful. But then shortly thereafter, I went to Chicago, to the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I think you went off to Stanford where you got your doctorate. But we met up again a few years later. We did. And it's this memory is just, uh, it, it's burned into my memory, Bill, because it, it was extremely meaningful for me. We um, we had been, in, you know, we had been vaguely in touch here and there. We saw each other at AERA and and so forth. And, uh, and I had then, since I'd finished at Stanford and taken a job at NYU, and I had been at NYU for uh, for about five or six years, five years, and and uh, we met up at a dinner 
uh, and I told you at this dinner, it was a big round table at a Chinese restaurant, I remember, and uh, you said, how are things going? And I, I told you, well, Bill, um, I'm in the process of uh, getting denied tenure by, uh, by NYU, and uh, I'm being fired. And you immediately stopped everything, uh, and you pulled me aside, and you said, tell me what's going on. Sit, you know, and we, we, we let the rest of the party uh, go on, and you and I sat and talked for a half an hour about what was going on at NYU, and, and, uh, and you jumped into action. It was, um, it was very meaningful to me to have a senior professor, um, you know, take an interest like that. And, uh, and, and uh, I think that we've been close friends ever since. We have, and comrades on so many different issues. But I want to go back to the tenure case because it's relevant to today um, and what's happening to so many academics. And I've often said when they go after somebody like you, or somebody like me during the Obama campaign, or somebody like Nicole Hannah-Jones, which we'll get to in a little bit. When they go after people like that, their actual target, I mean, it's critical that we support folks who are under attack by the, by the forces of reaction and stupidity. But at the same time, the target is actually the middle school history teacher. I mean, as well. I mean, if you can if you can attack a, a Nicole Hannah Jones, um, then what chance does a middle school teacher in Kansas have to tell the truth? I mean, she's got a Pulitzer and a MacArthur and so on. Well, the same was true for you. I mean, attacking you was easy for NYU, but there was a larger message. So tell people what your crime was besides the fact that your office was referred to as, I think, Lenin's tomb or something like that yeah, by, by the powerful. But uh, tell, tell, tell folks what your crime was. They called my office uh, that I was, uh, this was a secondary office that I was sharing with Robbie Cohen, where we were had a right. research project going. And uh, and the dean, Ann Marcus, called it the VI Lenin suite. In, oh, in the Lenin suite. suite. Okay. Yeah, in, in private email conversations um, that were made public through through this lawsuit later. But uh, yeah, I had, uh, I had been approached by the... Um, the graduate student union, they were seeking to become a union, the graduate student organization at NYU. And uh, they asked if I would be willing to testify uh, on behalf of their right to choose whether to form a union, not testifying saying that they should have a union, just that they should have a right to, to be able to vote on it. Uh, and I said, uh, of course, I, I would be happy to do that. But um, perhaps naively on my part, I, I didn't realize that I was, of course, uh, the only non-tenured faculty member in all of NYU um, to take such a position. And, uh, and uh, things changed dramatically as soon as I testified. When I got to the, 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 the courtroom, where this hearing was taking place, you know, I thought it would be kind of a boring, droll, uh, intolerable little session. And meanwhile, there was, you know, the dean of my school, the one of the VPs of the university, seven lawyers from the uh, law firm Proskauer and Rose, which is a famously anti-union law firm. And the whole thing started, you know, turned out to be like an episode from Law and Order with them screaming at me at the top of their lungs. He has no right to blah, blah, blah. Right, right, it, right. Was, it was very dramatic. Um, so that's when I realized this is something big and and indeed the it ended up being covered in the New York Times and the the Chronicle of Higher Ed because uh, and many other papers because this was a precedent setting case about whether graduate students at a private university have the right to form a union right and and the this wound its way to the National Labor Relations Board and that's where I was asked to testify and um, 
what the the powers that be at NYU certainly thought it was worth their time and money to crush the idea of a union. It wasn't, again, it wasn't you so much, although you were a, a target here, but they didn't want a union. They were willing to pay handsomely to not have a union um, of graduate students. It was incredible, Bill, because they were more willing to pay, you know, lawyers $800 an hour than than graduate students, uh, you know, $16 an hour. Exactly. I, I mean, it, and, and you see how these calculations go on. But at the NLRB, um, you brought forth all kinds of evidence that the powers that be before you were a sponsor of the student organization – they you won teaching awards and research awards and so on, so it was a little hard for them to say Westheimer's a nut. A, a nut. Uh, but how did they do it? I know it was there, there was kind of a humor behind the whole thing because about six months before they brought these charges against me or this these accusations um, of my being uh, an incompetent researcher, they had just given me this award for um, for the the, the um, best research uh, in my my school in the school of education not for untenured faculty but for all faculty um, only one person get gets it you know per year and then they had nominated me for this national award for the best research uh, best educational research so it was um, it, you know what it exposed Bill it exposed the incredible um, arrogance because they could have said uh, they could have said you know Joel um, doesn't uh, listen to his superiors or he, you know, you can fire anyone for, for any number of reasons, but they chose to go ahead and say that my, my research was inadequate when they had just nominated me for the best research. So, right. you know, it's really something, right? It really is. But I mean, it's a, it's a casebook lesson in how these things happen, but let's, let's move on to the contemporary scene. I mean, if you go back Many, many years, you and I have talked about the the move uh, of state legislatures and certain academics and so on to kind of suppress knowledge and information. And I remember you bringing to my attention years ago, one of the first laws against teaching the truth of history. And, and what I remember about it is something like history shall not be taught as an interpretation or a construction, but just the facts. That's that's how I remember it, but you would remember more clearly. Well, let's first of all, Bill, tell your listeners what a good memory you have, because I'm going to yeah. actually read you the law verbatim, and it was in June of 2006. Wow, that is a long time ago. Wow. I know. And it came under the auspices of the Florida Education Omnibus Bill, which was this, you know, like eight book long bill that that dictates everything that should happen in 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 Florida classrooms. But, um, it, I, you know, I called it the first uh, bill to actually outlaw critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, it included this this language. It, it said um, that the history of the United States shall be taught as genuine history. American history shall be viewed as factual, not as constructed, shall be viewed as knowable, teachable, and testable, perfect. not open to interpretation, right? Oh, that's and, perfect. And then, it's perfect. And then it went on to, you know, mandate flag education, including proper flag display and the flag salute and, and all of this stuff. And, it, you know, it was immediately contested by any number of historians who called it laughable. Um, and, and, and the, the, the version that got passed was a much more watered down version of that, but that was what was proposed by the, the legislature. And it was a sign of things to come, right? That was 2006, a long time ago, but we're now sitting in the middle of a time where 
uh, critical thinking itself is is under attack at the same time that conservatives like to say that they're the victims of critical thinking. So it's right. it's a remarkable journey, I think. Right. I mean, you use the word critical thinking, and I've often uh, said to my students. Um, uh, explain to me what thinking is that's not critical. Um, you know, in other words, I often think it's kind of a redundant. But but what's your reaction to the movement that we've seen growing these last 15, 20 years around thinking, around outlawing thinking? Yeah, it. I mean, look. On the one hand, it's not a new story, right, Bill? I mean, it's it's the story of kind of fascist regimes all over the world. And and I don't use the term fascist lightly. I'm not saying that the United States is now a fascist dictatorship uh, yet, but um, but it's the tools that are used to suppress free thinking. Um, and what's remarkable about the American version of this is that it's done at the same time that free thinking is held as, um, as, as a, a, a prize that we should value, right? Um, and uh, critical thinking, of course, is dangerous for a lot of people. Um, there's, there's that great saying that teachers use, everyone likes to teach critical thinking, but no one wants a classroom full of critical thinkers. Exactly. As long as you don't criticize me, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who wants a bunch of kids who say, you know, Mr. Mister Ayers, how do we know that the, the Norman invasion was in 1066, you know, and then right, you're, right. you're forced to say, because it says it in the textbook, stop asking me so many questions, right? Right, right. <laughs> So say say a bit more. Expand this question of of where we are in the, at this moment in American political history with with an attack on thought itself. I mean, go back to this question of um, of it should be taught as just the facts that are teachable, knowable, and testable. Say more about that. Well, what's remarkable about it is that um, the the, uh, the people who want history to be taught as a knowable, factual, um, you know, not open to interpretation thing. It's, it, it's not just that it's, um, goes against obviously everything that history is, which is, which is, you know, telling a narrative and there's a, there are different narratives out there. It doesn't mean that we don't all agree on some facts, right? We, I mean, that's, that's been the great perversion of this debate is that there's, there's plenty of facts everyone can agree on, but history is about which facts you choose to highlight, how you tell the story and, and so forth. And for many people in the United States, the idea of multiple interpretations is scary. And what's so sad about that position is that, of course, the idea of multiple interpretations and competing narratives is the most patriotic of examples of what America um, is all about uh, and, and what many democracies around the world should be all about or what America should be all about anyway. Um, and. Uh, you know, in the case of, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for example, um, really what the 1619 Project is saying is the most patriotic of messages, which is that America can be redeemed mm. by addressing mm. its past injustices. Mm. Uh, and and the idea that we shouldn't look at past injustices is um, is 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 a shame and it, it's uh, you know it's it's putting us in a, a box that confines us to forever be repeating those injustices and be lesser than we could be you know i think the the critics of for example critical race theory and the people who are hollering cancel culture cancel culture i think that they misinterpret on so many levels but i think it's intentional also i mean 
if you are asked to teach history and leave out slavery, I mean, what is what is the point of that? And and or take anything that you say there are facts and then there are constructions and interpretations. Yes, a boat sailed from Europe and landed um, in in the Caribbean and then uh, on the coast of of the United States and so on. Those things happened, but was it um, a, a a Castilian adventurer or a genuine adventurer in the pay of Castilian royalty, or was it the beginning of the Colombian genocide, or was it the discovery of America? And I think that's, you know, what I think is also often misunder misstated. I don't know that it's misunderstood, but misstated is that it's not like critical race theory or the 1619 project is saying teach this dogma rather than that dogma. It's saying, be curious, ask questions, look deeper. What else? What more can you understand? What other perspectives exist? Who's, whose interest does this story serve? And so on. In other words, there are a million ways to ask the next question without becoming the new dogma. Absolutely. And, and I mean, let's Let's talk about a second bill for about critical race theory. Just that name, that name, you know, that that those words sound sound a little bit scary, even to some of our friends. Right. But what is critical race theory? It's just looking at the past through a lens of race. I mean, that's really what it is about. Right. We can choose different lenses to look at the past through and we should do many of them simultaneously. Um, but critical race theory says we have to look at historical events um, through the lens of race to uncover some of the forces that brought us to where we are. And to deny that is is you know, it's ludicrous, right? It's yeah. just ludicrous. And I think probably, um, you know, among academics, uh, the words critical race theory uh, make perfect sense. But when you when you bring that to uh, a popular audience, it scares some people. And I don't really think there's anything scary um, about any of those words, critical race or theory. Um, but theory is is a scary word to many people on the right um, for for many of the reasons you just said. But I think it's also an intentional stirring up of fear. I mean, you know, when you think about the 1619 Project, which was so eye-opening and so brilliant and so brilliantly conceived, and of course, it's not the last word on anything. It was just a current way of kind of thinking about it. And Nicole Hannah-Jones did such a brilliant job of bringing scholars and artists and others together to, to launch that project. And the argument is, this is where you ought to look if you want to understand the origins of the United States. And of course, in response, Donald Trump creates the 1776 Commission, whose mission is to say, 1776 was perfect, and it's only gotten better. And it's kind of astonishing, you know, to, to see those up next to each other. And I think that, that what you're saying about telling the truth, exploring, asking questions, seeing the world as perspectival rather than flat and, um, you know, uh, one thing after another is critically important. Yeah. And, you know, as educators, the, the ironic thing about this is not only is that a better approach to history, um, but it's it's a more interesting and engaging approach to history, right? Otherwise you're like, you know, we're like in Ferris Bueller's day off with that economics teacher saying anyone, anyone, you know, who, who discovered blah, 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 you know, anyone, anyone in the kid in, in the front row is, is drooling and, uh, and falling asleep. What's exciting about history is being told that there's not just one way to look at it. There are many ways to look at it. And don't you think, I don't know, what is the, the word theory to you? Um, 
I, like what what is a theory and why does it scare so many people? Well, I mean, I think it it sounds hyper intellectual. And one of the things about critical race theory is that it's not something that's spreading into the high schools. It's a loose collection of academics from different fields and scholars and others who want to um, who want to foreground what they think is essential to understand about the truth of our country. And most of them, I think, would argue that it's not a set of things to teach, but it's an orientation to thinking. And And the theory part of it is reflection. To me, theory is a way to reflect. And while I don't think any theory explains everything, I think that without theory, we'd be, you know, lost. I mean, we, science matters, theory matters, but it's not, the, it's not, something to genuflect in front of or to bow down to or to kiss the ring of. It's something to use to the extent that it's useful. I mean, we all do it all the time. I mean, we have we have mental maps of what's going on. You're in the street and you see a man hit a woman and your theory is that that's misogynist. And you may be wrong in that particular case, incidentally, but you saw it and it fits a certain kind of theory that you have. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, right? It's a way of looking at the world through a particular lens. Um, and one of the other things that I think makes it seem so dangerous to some people is that it implies that we have choices. And, and when you want to tell a high school student um, or, an, or an elementary school student that they can actually be a part of history, that, um, that they can change the way we look at the world, right? That's very dangerous to many people, the, the idea that a, a child could learn that they can improve the world around them. Because many people don't want the world changed. But when you, when you say that um, we're going we're gonna to look at a theory of something, it means that we have choices. I, I got to tell you this really funny story about my daughter, Mahal, who you know well. Um, Mahal, once um, we, we took her to a, a, a summer camp um, that, uh, that was a, a camp that I was very involved with when I was a kid. And it has a kind of socialist educational flavor to it, as many of, uh, of, of these summer camps do. Um, and, uh, and Mahal didn't want to go to summer camp at all. But, uh, but she went and she said, look, I'll go for, I'll go for a week or two. And, and you know, she agreed to that. And so we brought her, but she'd only go if her friend Zoe would go with her. And, uh, and so we took both Zoe and, Zo- Zo- and, and Mahal to this camp and we picked them up after a week and um and Mahal couldn't wait to get out of there because summer camp wasn't her thing but Zoe wanted to stay another week and uh and and um her her mother asked you know she couldn't because she was going to another camp and her mother um asked Zoe uh Zoe what you know which camp did you like better after she had gone to this other camp and Zoe said you know I think I I liked the the first camp uh better and her her mother said why why'd you like that first camp and Zoe said she thought about it and she said, well, you know, at the, at the second camp, um, we didn't talk about the theory of socialism so much. (laughs) (laughs) And so I love this story because of course I hadn't really told her mother that it was, you know, had a socialist bent to it, but, but more, more importantly, what I love about it is not actually the word socialism. Um, although it's an interesting educational tool, it was the word theory. Of right? course, because of theory course. was teaching those kids that they have choices about the way they look at the world and that those right. choices have consequences. Right. And I think that I think that is a terrifying thing in a, in a country like ours, which has a precarious, it has a, 
a, a very troubled history and a kind of pre- precariousness about it right now around questions like white supremacy and male supremacy. And as these things are challenged and undone, there's a sense of losing something. But what you're losing is a kind of orthodoxy. And so when you look at the 1776 project, that's an orthodox view of history that that they really want to force on you. Critical race theory has none of that uh, built into it. It's not an orthodoxy. It's not a dogma. You don't have to genuflect in front of it. Actually, it's a tool to try to unpack the complexity of the world and to try to come at some other truths, some deeper truths. And when you come to those deeper truths, that won't be the last word either. There will be more to learn and more to know. But the the kind of notion that we're swirling through space making choices is terrifying sometimes, you know, and I get that. But I would say, I would argue, Joel, that the more terrifying word in critical race theory is race, because race is the great the, the great reality, the great fiction, um, the great problem that faces us. And when what critical race theory is interested in is telling the truth, not not a single orthodox truth, but searching for the truth. And only by finding the truth can you move toward repair or reconciliation. Those things are sequential. Tell the truth, repair the harm, and reconcile. But you can't reconcile without telling the truth. I think that's what terrifies people. Yeah, I think that, right. I mean, let's talk about race a little, because I think that what we've learned in this uh, in this last um, year during the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement is, is um, many people really saw the degree to which race underlies so many dynamics of power in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people who accepted that there, of course, is a ton of racism in our society, still saw it as there's a there's a ton of racism, there's sexism, there's, you know, there's all these things and we can find these forces. But I don't think that 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 um, that all of us realize the degree to which race underpins so much in our society and for for blacks and whites right and uh and and i think that that's what the 1619 project tried to bring to the fore and that's what makes it so dangerous so scary to so many people and that's why it's contested i think there's another reason it's contested too and that is that um the powers that be especially the reactionary powers the organized right-wing forces in our country. And it's a worldwide phenomenon, this this rise of, of organized, fascist-leaning right-wing forces. Certainly in our country, white supremacy has never gone away. It's always been there. But I've never seen it as organized and as focused as it is today. And those forces rely on fear, anger, uh, paranoia, hatred, and stirring up anger about the, uh, you know, an academic uh, impulse called critical race theory is kind of classic. It's, it's, um, it has nothing to do with anything that's to impact people's lives in a negative way. And yet that's how it's kind of pulled out there and used. And I think that's a really dangerous thing. That's why we have to oppose it. And in that regard, maybe say a word about Nicole Hannah-Jones and tell folks what she's facing and why. I mean, 
This is an, it's an extraordinary case, right? Because um, it's the kind of poster child case that anyone uh, on, on our side, let's say, um, would want, right? Because she's the, she's the perfect specimen. I mean, she is, you know, she won a Pulitzer Prize, right? She won, she's a MacArthur Fellow, which is otherwise known as the Genius Award, right? She was um, elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I mean, she, right, she's, she's the whole package. I mean, right. she is the exact person who comes in uh, with a tenured appointment at a place like UNC. And in fact, the two people who, who held the night chairs just before her uh, were, were appointed with tenure, right? So then for the, for the board to come back and say, you know, well, you know, she doesn't have a, a, an academic background, um, it, you know, it's clearly um, enormously insincere. And uh, she was brought in, um, Hannah Nicole Jones, as a professor, and she was um, offered a, a five-year appointment um, instead of uh, a tenured appointment, which would be the normal procedure. And this was a last-minute change. It broadsided the, the department that was hiring her because they had all recommended uh, that she be brought in with tenure. Um, and it exposes uh, the degree to which the board of UNC is, uh, is ideologically motivated and, and is worried about someone um, like, like Nicole Hannah-Jones to have a degree of protection that tenure affords, right? Yeah. So is, I that, is that how you would look at it? Yeah, I do. But I, I posted something about it and I said two things. One, one, I looked up who's on the board of the University of North Carolina and it's real estate magnates, lawyers, businessmen, uh, with one exception, a young white woman whose field is listed as life coach. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, so she's making judgments about the, uh, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, wow. And, and meanwhile, if, if the entire department had the credentials that Nicole Hannah-Jones has all by herself, the department would be considered outstanding. So here's one individual. But as I said to you earlier, I think the main target when you go after an Edward Said, a Susan Sontag, a Nicole Hannah-Jones, or even Joel Westheimer himself, you know, what you're really doing is you're saying, no, this will not pass. We are not going to allow it. And for the new assistant professor at a city college or a high school teacher or a junior high school teacher, the, the message is clear. Stay in your lane. Stay quiet. Keep your head down. That's the only way you'll survive. That's why we have to speak up and push back on her case and, uh, and on the right terms. Yeah. I, and I remember, Bill, this was something so uh, insightful that you said to me back in the time of the, the NYU um, situation that, that and as you mentioned, ended up going before the National Labor Relations Board and they, they ended up charging NYU with, uh, with um, you know, political discrimination based on my testimony. But you said something that was so important then and, and in later in talks we did together um, that you know, academics like to think that there's this, this freedom that they'll get soon that first right. you have to be a graduate student and you have to do what your what your thesis supervisor wants then you'll get to you'll get a coveted tenure track position but of course you have to stay in line until you get tenure then you get tenure and you of course you think you well you just got to stay in line until you get full professor or because you want this the the teaching the course in Italy you know that the dean has to give you and there'll always be something like that and you can't wait because by the time you wait uh, you've become someone else this is what exactly. what you told me and I, exactly. I think that was so insightful yeah all, all the rough edges get sanded off so by the time you're a full professor
professor with tenure or the provost of the university, you forgot why you went into this in the first place. (laughs) And and you you went went into it it to make a difference and to help people. And suddenly you're in a position where you thought you'd have the power to do something and not only you do not have the you do not have the power, but you've forgotten why you were there. I think that's a really important uh, message. And incidentally, you teach teachers. It's also true of teachers. Student teachers often say, "Well, I'm a student teacher, so I'm not free. But next year I'll be a teacher, and then I can do whatever I want." Sorry, you're never free unless you claim your freedom, and that's a risky proposition, which you did at NYU. So, to your great credit. Yeah, you know. I have a I have a tough question for for us for a second. Okay. Um, you and I have both been in in teacher education classrooms um, where I think if we wanted to argue the side of the right that um, that some students are you know that only one view is being allowed to be expressed, um, we could probably be sympathetic in some classrooms with this idea that. Um, there's an orthodoxy being pushed by the left occasionally. And I'm wondering if, if, if we have something um, to say about that, that um, when you move away from the lens of, of theory, in other words, there's one way of looking at things and we need to explore those ways to um, a place where uh, we can't look at other views. What's the, we don't want to get into a false balance thing because we all know that's, that's absurd, right? Um, but, but how do we teach our future teachers to engage people with different views um, and bring them along in the process of critical thinking rather than making them feel like, like outsiders? Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Critical thinking or thinking. But, but I, I, st- I start by saying, uh, in answer to your question, my, my opening thought is that um, of all the orthodoxies and dogmas that are out there, the dogma of common sense is the most insistent. That the, the dogma of common sense never lets up. So this is just the way things are. What I think the pedagogy of, um, of critical educators, the pedagogy of liberatory education is a pedagogy of questioning. It's a pedagogy of dialogue and asking the next question and then the next question. I've said on the podcast earlier that one of my favorite writers is Viet Thanh Nguyen, and um, he's written two books. I mean, he's written many books, but I guess three, but his uh, book, The Sympathizer, um, award-winning novel, and then it just came out, the follow-up to that called The Committed. And if you haven't read them, you really must. Because I, what, yeah. you The Sympathizer is, is phenomenal. Well, and, and, and The Committed is the same narrator now in France. It's a little, uh, you know, story of police and drug dealers, but it's really a story of theory and, and politics. But, but, what I think is so important about Viet Thanh Nguyen as a, as a writer and as a model in both his nonfiction and his fiction is that he dances the dialectic better than anyone I know. That is, on page, I think, early on in the, in the Committed, the narrator says, Ah, contradiction, the universal body odor of humanity. And he <laughs> means it. And, and what he does that is so hard for your students and my students, he does it flawlessly, is he dives into, rather than run away from, 
contradiction. And if he dives into the contradiction, that is, he can't resolve it. It's such a Western way of thinking that we want to, it's either this or that. Well, it's contradiction. Okay, which one is right? That's not what contradiction is. It's living within the tension of, of, of this dialectical way of thinking. I, so my answer to your opening question is teach by asking the next question. Never allow your students, and, and you can point it out explicitly, but it's most important to do it. Show them what it means to ask the next question, to entertain the next curious point, and to pursue those things rather than settle. Yeah, I I, the, I think questions, that's exactly, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's all about asking the questions and being comfortable with the fact that um, in, in some sense, many things can be true at the same time, right? Exactly. Things are are pitted against one another. Um, and and often we don't, we don't have the tools yet to navigate through them in a really uh, clear way, but we have to, we have to sit there with the contradiction. Yeah, you, you have to sit with it and live with it. I, I've told you once a story of a of a student of mine, a doctoral student who was in her 40s, I believe, and she taught at a lovely African-American school uh, on the west side of Chicago for 25 years, loved the school, wanted to tell the school's story, but came to the research class saying, I want to tell this story, but I'm white and I can't tell the story because I'm white. On the other hand, I'm a good white person, so I can tell the story. And then her question was, which is, which is it? Can I tell it or can't I tell it? And what the class came to after a lot of discussion and thought was, stay in the contradiction. You're not a good white person. What the hell is that anyway? I mean, you know, there's kind of no such thing in some kind of finish. And there's nothing that's off limits to either the imagination or um, or your curious mind. And so how do you live within that? So if you decide to write about this school, don't get into the position of saying, I'm good, therefore I can write the perfect story. Keep that question alive. And that's living within the contradiction. Yeah, you know, we can, we, it, that's exactly right. And I think that um, when you are not willing to engage with those contradictions and you're not willing to engage with questions, what it means is that mostly that you are, you want things to stay as they are, right? And you want power relations to stay as they are. And we've talked about the example of race. You know, this morning I heard on the radio, these two uh, students in, in Ottawa won a, a $10,000 prize for creating a board game about teaching financial literacy, right? So if we talk about economic inequality, it's another great example. There's a, a graduate student at, at University of Ottawa Agata Sirocco, who did a, a, is doing a thesis on um, financial literacy, and she exposes this way that financial literacy is embraced, right? Because it doesn't ask you to question power relations, right? It says you're, you know, are you poor because you don't have a job that that pays sufficiently? No, you're poor because you can't balance your your checkbook, or you just right, need to right. be you need to be taught to save, right? It's like those when homeless people had those signs in the '70s in New York City that said, um, "Can you spare a little change for a down payment on my condo?" Right, 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 <laughs> right, right, right. Perfect. <laughs> I wanna I wanna pivot because we don't have a lot of time left, and I want to talk about two more things. Um, first, I'd like you to. Um, um, talk a little bit about um, your book, What Kind of Citizen, which I think is a really important book for teachers at every level and really for citizens at every level. But talk a little bit about the thesis of that book, which I think 
is an important book. We have a little feature on this podcast called Book of Books. So I'm adding Joel Westheimer, um, What Kind of Citizen, a terrific book. Thanks, Bill. Um, what Kind of Citizen uh, came out originally from, and the subtitle is Educating Our Children for the Common Good. And I know, you know, you've talked about themes of the common good on your podcast quite a lot. Um, it comes out of research that Joe Kahn and I did uh, starting quite a while back. Um, and it, it, what, we, what we were curious about is that a lot of programs uh, in schools talk about, have the rhetoric about teaching good citizenship, right? It's in the mission statement of all schools that we want kids to learn to be good citizens. But we were curious about what that meant across different programs, right? What does it mean to be, you know, you, you stop 100 people on the street and say, hey, do you think schools should teach kids to be good citizens? Everyone says, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But but then you say, oh, um, just one more question. Uh, uh, what exactly is a good citizen and what exactly should teachers teach about it, right? That's when you get... Uh, the, the conflict and the, the consensus starts to fray and, and, uh, and you start to get all these disputes. Um, and so we wanted to ask that question, what do these programs, what do schools think that a good citizen is? And we, we ended up finding out, and it's now this framework, you know, I don't know, it, it, uh, it caught on, it hit a nerve, obviously. And so it's now been tested in, you know, 37 countries and, and and in thousands of studies, um, but we originally were just looking at 10 programs. And what we found was that, loosely speaking, um, the visions of, of a good citizen could fall into three categories because, you know, professors love little boxes, right? So, um, and the three categories were these, um, three visions of a good citizen. The first was personally responsible citizens. The second was participatory citizens, as in participation. And the third was socially justice-oriented citizens. Right. And, um, I, you know, I, I won't go on about this too long, but just to tell you that uh, the personally responsible citizen is are, are programs that want kids to be good people, you know, nice people, don't litter, uh, dress nicely, pay your taxes, show up to school on time, don't talk back, uh, you know, be a, be a give blood when blood is needed, help an old person across the street, uh, you know, good people. Be uh, conventional. Be a conventional exactly. person. Exactly. Right. And, uh, and, and a, a vast majority of school-based programs that aim to teach good citizenship are trying to teach that version of the good citizen. Um, character education programs fall mm. into that category, right? Um, but there was a, a second vision of the good citizen that, that we called this participatory one. And those programs uh, were less common, but still quite present. Uh, they wanted kids to participate. So they, they wanted kids to know how legislation gets passed, to know how government works, um, and to get involved in their community and, and organize things. So, so uh, you know, for example, if the participatory citizens were organizing a food drive to address hunger issues in their community, the personally responsible citizens would be donating a can of food because they're, they're nice people. Right. right. And then there was this third vision of a good citizen, and there was a smattering of programs that did this. Um, and that was the social justice-oriented citizens. And, and those programs wanted kids to ask questions like you and I were just talking about, um, look for the root causes of problems, learn about social movements and how social change happens. So, you know, if I use that example I, I gave just now, if the participatory citizens are, are organizing a food drive, and the personally responsible citizens are donating a can of food, the social justice oriented citizens are asking students to ask, why in one of the richest countries in the world are people hungry? 
and what can we do about that? I love that. I think that's so interesting. I taught a class in ethics this term, and the first prompt I gave people was, are you a moral person? What's the evidence? And people universally went to the default position. I'm kind. I'm nice. I must be moral. And then you get into this question that you're raising. What is social ethics? What is what does it mean to live in a society that can that you can warrant or that you can support? I think this I think that book is brilliant. I'm so glad that it's done well. And now that we put it on this podcast, I mean, New York Times bestseller, I Exactly. It's gonna it's gonna go all over. And you know what the interesting thing about these personally responsible citizenship or character education programs is that there's not a country on the planet that wouldn't be happy with those kind of citizens. Exactly. Right? So, you know, Russia, uh, North Korea, yeah. Indonesia, Iran, yeah. uh, Iraq, everyone wants citizens who pay taxes and and, oh. and and listen to authority, right? And show up on time. I mean, and it's so parallel to this ethics class I, I taught because I asked the students um, if a slave owner paid his taxes, never beat his children, um, you know, worked industriously, would he be a moral person? Oh, uh, no. Well, what society do you live in, dude? You know, anyway, I'm going to pivot once more because we really are running out of time. And I want you to, if you remember... Um, you do remember that you edited a wonderful book during the Iraq war called Pledging Allegiance. And I had a, a chapter in that book. And you and I did an event uh, that was filmed by Book TV about that book. Can you remember that event? If you can't, my sharp memory will bring it back. But you remember that you and I were filmed for an hour or an hour and a half by Book TV. Can you describe the event and and, and the book a little bit? This is one of my favorite events I've ever done because here's the story, which uh, I'm sure you remember as well. Book TV came and they brought a camera crew of like eight people with four cameras aimed at every direction. It was it, the the place was it was you know a huge event and and the venue the venue was a bookstore on the south side of Chicago. Yeah, what's which bookstore was it? 50, 57 Street Books. Fifty Seven Street Books, the one of the one of the greatest bookstores in the country, and um, and we arrived there, and uh, and my friend Pam was there, and you had a friend there, um, and that was it. It was uh, I think the four of us. <laughs> But what's amazing about it is, Bill, what, what it, when we saw this, and you can still Google this thing, when you see the video, what does it look like? It looks like a cast of thousands because they had so many cameras and they kept right on me and right on Joel. And then they would flash to one person in the audience and then another person in the audience. And meanwhile, there were 75 empty chairs that they, we never saw. Exactly. But it perfect. looked like it was well attended. <laughs> it was perfect. I think there was also uh, uh, somebody who just gotten out of the hospital, uh, stumbled in for warmth. I mean, you know, it was a weird moment. But but when we saw it on book TV, we said, man, media knows how to manipulate. I mean, they can create something out of nothing. And they did that for us. That was kind of hilarious. Luckily, you and I just uh, enjoy talking to one another. So we exactly. had a good time. Exactly. And I have enjoyed talking to you this morning. It's great to see you. And we we will get together soon. I think we're planning to get together in the next week. I'm looking forward to it. Joel, thank you so much. For, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And love to your family. Thanks, Phil. Before we say goodbye for today, I have a homework assignment. And it is to contemplate, to think through, to reflect on this question. 
If I stand up for the truth in my classroom, my family, my neighborhood, what might be the cost? If I fail to stand up for and tell the truth, what then is the cost? Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a gathering place. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.